Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're feeling happy, healthy, and safe. We have an unusually packed show today, so let's get right to it. Later on, we're going to meet author Jamie Weinman. His new book is Anvils, Mallets, and Dynamite, the unauthorized biography of Looney Tunes. It's an affectionate tribute and history of the home of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, and many other iconic cartoon characters. That's a bit later on. Then musician Jean Baptiste stops by. Perhaps you know him as the band leader on the Stephen Colbert show, or maybe as the Oscar winner for his score to the Pixar movie Soul. Today we find out about his album We Are, which is available now wherever you buy fine music. Then we'll meet Robert Matson, an acclaimed old Hollywood biographer and author of a new book called Warrior Audrey Hepburn, which you may have seen featured recently in a four-page spread in People magazine. First, though, let's meet the Marie Kondo of digital. Her name is Christina Crook, and she's written a thoughtful book about realigning our energies, increasing intentionality, and prioritizing our well-being in the digital age. Her new book is called Good Burdens, How to Live Joyfully in the Digital Age. And Christina Crook joined me via Zoom. Tell me a little bit about your entryway into this idea uh, that to live joyfully, we have to really put down our phones and, and, and get back to real life. I come by way of uh, studying at the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver and beginning my career at the CBC in Vancouver. Um, and my own discomfort with the role the internet was playing in my life happened when I actually moved from Vancouver to Toronto and sort of in one fell swoop, all of a sudden, my oldest relationships, my closest relationships were all of a sudden mediated in some way through technology, whether it be the phone or, you know, at that point, uh, Facebook was sort of a, a new phenomenon. Uh, and I found that this sort of encroachment of tech on my life was making me uncomfortable. I was finding I wasn't treading deeper creative threads in terms of my creative work as a writer. Uh, I was a young new parent and I was aware of the ways in which it was shaping my role as a parent. Um, and also the ways that I was connecting or in some cases not connecting with my local neighborhood. And so I took a 31 day fast from the internet and that led to the writing of my first book, The Joy of Missing Out. And that's where it all began. I would suggest suggest that uh, that was about 10 years ago, I think 10 or 11 years ago, uh, that it's only gotten worse for most people, uh, the addiction to having your phone close by all the time to always having the thing turned on and feeling connected. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're not more connected. We are uh, in touch maybe, but that's not a real connection. Media by definition means in between. And so whenever we're putting something between an us and another person, right, we're, 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 um, we're putting in space that doesn't need to be there. So I am always advocating for people to sort of close that gap. The more direct your communication can be, the more intimate it can become. And you talk, you mentioned uh, the joy of missing out. What are reasons that people would not embrace the idea of JOMO. FOMO is wanting what other people have. It's essentially the phenomenon of social contagion. That's the technical term. We see, or we, we think we see, right, a picture of other people's lives and we want for that thing. And so the, the real danger in forces like FOMO is, is it feeds us a lie that we can be and do and experience everything. 
because we actually can't. And so I think those that can't or struggle with embracing Jomo are very just are just so deep into those lies that it's hard to untangle. For me, the conversation about how we live well with technology is really centered on joy. I really do believe that we have we have to be moving towards something more compelling to make screens sort of less compelling. So when our activities are fully joyful, when we love what we are doing, even if it's digital, even if the ways that we're engaging online, um, it's an online space that we're engaged in, it has to be more compelling and more joyful. So I define Jomo as the joy of missing out on the right things, really to make space for the things that bring joy and bring us alive. And so let's talk then, uh, uh, moving into good burdens uh, a little bit more deeply, uh, mastering the algebra of joy. Algebra never brought me any joy. Please <laughs> explain <laughs> how it can be helpful in my life. Uh, so that was um, a kind of a play. It's actually just one plus one. So the algebra of joy, um, the idea there is, and I made this discovery um, through writing Good Burdens, um, and this was subsequent to writing The Joy of Missing Out, was I did a word study on joy and written right into the dictionary definition of the words are two things we all want, well-being and success. So joy, the algebra of joy is joy equals well-being and success, but I define them in very a very specific way. Well-being is having a positive relationship with your abilities and your limits. I think that's where we get really get caught up online is we're really uncomfortable with having limits, right? We're, we're, we're being told constantly to life hack, right? Our way or hustle our way out of those limits. You're listening to my interview with Christina Crook, author of the book, Good Burdens, How to Live Joyfully in the Digital Age. But limits are really an opportunity for relationship. And that's the well-being side, right? When we have a limit, then we are forced to rely on other people and that actually um, serves our well-being. The other side of joy is success, and success is simply the achievement of goals. It's moving after and accomplishing the goals that we set for ourselves. So it, they're not external goals, right? It's so, they're internal goals once we've set for ourselves. And I think that, and that is the way to joy, right? Because when we're deep, deep in FOMO, we're getting external voices, external influences telling us, you know, what success is supposed to look like, but that isn't the way, right. To true, true meaning and joy. Um, we have to be defining that for ourselves. And one of those ways is to put down the screens and you suggest something. And I just love kind of just how simple this is. It's like, go take a walk. Maybe it just feels like it's from an, you know, it's an old fashioned idea and that's why we don't embrace it more. Yeah. From the before times, um, yeah. my book launch just recently happened and my agent, Samantha Haywood, uh, was there and we were talking about people were sharing their joys and she shared this strategy, which I think is phenomenal and really lets people put into practice exactly what we're talking about right now, which is simply creating a little list of joys, the things that bring you alive. And when you're exhausted and when you're end of the, at the end of the, you know, 12 hours of zooming, instead of just rolling over, right. And binge watching Netflix and just spending the rest of your day on your, another screen, um, you can, it's a, it's a little shortcut. You look at that list and you can see, oh yeah, that thing, that thing, you know, brings me a lot of joy. I'm going to go spend my time and attention on that. And that's the idea with good burdens is that once you get across a certain threshold of effort, 
the burden disappears. It's a good burden. It's worth putting the effort into. Just tell me a little bit about writing the book. Uh, you know, when I think of, because it's part memoir, and when I think of of uh, writing something like that, you have to reveal yourself uh, to a certain extent. Uh, are you uh, always comfortable with that idea? I think so. I think uh, vulnerability was important in this case because it is so easy to hide online. You know, the big promises of technology are we're going to make things faster, easier, more convenient, and that we can control, right? We can control our persona. We can control um, the ways we appear on the internet. And I felt like a, an important way into understanding this idea of joy and good burdens um, required vulnerability on my part. So is it easy? No. Were there parts of the book that I had moments of hesitation in sharing, especially things related to my marriage and different burdensome, but good burden pieces of my life? Um, yeah, it gave me pause, but I, I did feel like it was important to push through and share them. I like this. This really stuck out to me about asking two questions to yourself just before you go to sleep. One was, what was the most life-giving experience of the day? The other is, what was the most life-taking experience of my day? What do you hope that we learn from asking ourselves these questions? My hope is that you don't have to add another thing to your to-do list, but in fact, by bringing these things into awareness that you naturally and subconsciously move more towards and choose more of the life-giving things. When you look at your list and let's say on your life-giving column, it was throwing a ball at the park with your kid uh, for 10 minutes and uh, your life-taking thing that day was scrolling Instagram for 45 minutes over time, just that really simple awareness just orients your life towards the joy and towards the life-giving. And so that's why I love this practice because none of us have margin. This is the great crisis, right? We don't have more time or energy hours in the day to do right. anything more. And so I wanted to make this as, sim as simple as possible. And then how then do you prioritize the way that you live your life. Yeah. I mean, very practically, you know, I'm a self-employed person, so I do set three major goals for my week. I'm a big believer in tracking things in analog. That's how I, you know, I wrote the book. Uh, it's a physical calendar on a wall. I'm right. crossing things off. Um, and this is, this is very helpful for its completion bias, right? We want to complete. And when we're doing things constantly digitally, um, I so love it. My I'm, handwritten list right now with the X's that I find very satisfying. Next. So satisfying. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And so, um, so, so how do I do it? Uh, you know, I do it in that way. Um, and I'm setting those goals for myself, right? What does success look like for me? I've set my goals. Um, they're connected to joy. And I think just a playful way of, um, bringing more of this into your life is, just bringing in joyful elements into your day-to-day -day life. So I surround myself with what might seem to some people like cheesy little things, but I have little woodcuts from my favorite island in the world, my favorite place in the world. And they literally travel with me. If I go on a trip and I'm doing a writing retreat, like those, you know, they're in the bag, like they're coming with me. Um, and then finally, I would just say, um, and this comes out in the book, um, but the longest longitudinal study of human development in history, the grant study found that the greatest source of joy are warm relationships. They're deep sustaining relationships. And so, um, you know, when it comes down to it, the big question for me is, am I investing 
deeply am I being invested into and making sure that that's, you know, that's happening, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. That was Christina Crook pioneer and leading voice in the field of digital well-being. Check out her book, Good Burdens, How to Live Joyfully in the Digital Age, wherever you buy fine books. We're going to meet John Batiste. You see him Monday through Friday as the band leader on the Stephen Colbert Show. But did you know that he's also an Oscar winner? He was a child prodigy on piano, played with his family. We're going to talk about all that stuff in just a minute or so. Uh, but he also has a new album out called We Are, which is is available now wherever you buy fine music. John Baptiste joined me via Zoom from his home in New York City. When you were eight, you played drums and percussion in your family's band. What kind of music were you playing at that point? We played music that was New Orleans-based funk, soul, R&B, Zydeco, Cajun music. My grandfather's Cajun from Lafayette, Louisiana. The patriarch of the musical side of my family, the Batiste family. And, you know, we played all different styles of, of contemporary music as well. And eventually it turned into the junior family band. And that was me, my cousin Travis, my other cousin Jamal, and our friend Roy. And we played video game themes <laughs> and all this traditional music. So those were our two bags in terms of repertoire. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, the mix and match of all sorts of different styles of music that you would have played back then. And then had the addition of uh, video game music on top of all that, because you say you don't believe in genre. You don't think that things need to be pigeonholed into a certain kind of, of thing. Why is that? Is Do you think it's because there were so many influences on you when you were growing up? Well, I think that, to be honest, Richard, I think it's a, a matter of the way that the market is set up and how music is is bought and sold. And we want to categorize things because it helps to organize. But what that's done is created a system that limits the creativity of the artist and how the artist is perceived by the public. A lot of music is hard to put into a genre. And a lot of times artists in these times make music to fit into a genre. And that's backwards. It's fitting into a box isn't the artist's way. And music comes from heritage. Music comes from culture. Music comes from a person's spirit, their soul, their ideas, things they're innately born with. And all those things are so vast. How could you categorize the output that comes from those things? You see that on the album. There's 200 collaborators on this record. I mean, it, it, there's everyone from Quincy Jones to uh, family members of yours. And I imagine that each of those people uh, brings something new. I understand that you recorded uh, kind of like a rough draft of the album in six days. And then you spent nine months, I guess, massaging the material, bringing people in. What was that process like? And did the music change from the the first version of this recorded in six days and then you have all these people come in did the sound change and did you learn something from that oh everything changed tremendously and and as it should you know you think about someone who is painting or creating a work of art and that's how i approach making an album um you think of the sistine chapel and, and michelangelo and the idea that this took so many 
years of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea comes just like that. When you're inspired, I had the vision from the beginning, but I had to really find all of the right colors, both sonically and narratively to create this, this novel of an album. And every person that I picked is a different color on my canvas and the vision comes to life and evolves and changes. And I learn how to work with light better. And I learn how to work with my brushes better. And all these things happen throughout the process of making the art. You're listening to my interview with John Baptiste. Find his album, We Are, wherever you buy fine music. And you can play a number of instruments. I love that you started on drums and then your mom said you should be playing piano and you do that so well and you you do all sorts of things like that. Does having knowledge of how each section of a band or a piece of music should come together, does that directly influence the way that you write and perhaps the way that you produce when you're in a studio? Absolutely. More so the the character that I'm envisioning when I hear an instrument or I hear a melody or a lyric that I'm writing or a bass line or everything is a character or a story. I'm a very visual person. And to me, I'm more so inspired by life than I am from the, the inspiration standpoint. I'm more inspired by life than I am by music. You know, I can meet a person and the way they talk or the way that they walk. You know, sometimes, Richard, where you talk to somebody and it's just, they sound like they have a novel in their voice. They right. just it just it 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 inspires me in that way. And sometimes it's best if I'm the one playing those instruments to get the right nuance of that character and the right swag. Other times I need to call James Gadson to play this part because he's the perfect drummer for Tell the Truth. Or, you know, I gotta get my dad on the bass. Or I have to call, you know, the St. Augustine High School marching band, or I have to call this or that person because they're the right fit. Was this recorded during the pandemic in the last year? Yes, it was started September 2019, and we concluded around June of 2020. Um, and throughout this entire time, I'm, I'm recording that. I'm doing television. I'm doing the score for Soul. I'm doing all these things at the same time. And the world shuts down when we're on the home stretch of, of not only um, the score for Soul, but the album conclusion so yeah it was finished the last three or four months of the the project were done in the pandemic and remotely i'm guessing absolutely you listen to the songs you know the song i did with the british novelist zadie smith she was in london and i was in new york city and um you know we did it via zoom virtually and a lot of things were done that way on the album there's so many songs that we created visuals for that are yet to come out. And one that's been released is the video for I Need You. And imagine filming, when you watch that video, it's so full of joy, it's so full of love and energy. And we had to really isolate before taping it. We had to get vaccine shots and uh, if some of us couldn't get the vaccine, so we had to get tests and everything like that. And then we had to social distance. And in the video, you would never guess because we're doing the Lindy Hop dance together, but you know, <laughs> It was it was a real process to film that during the pandemic. I'm sure it was. Well, it, this new record seems like it was it was started before the pandemic, but it seems like it was made for this time that we're living in right now. It feels so contemporary because it is a joyful record. It's a it's a record that has some real uplift and spirit to it. But on the other hand, there is social commentary and there is. 
a, a lot of, of um, eyes looking forward what's coming next on this record. That's the sense that I got. Um, and uh, there were songs like Cry on this album that for me, when I listen to the lyrics of that, um, that I find them deeply moving. Uh, so tell me a little bit about creating that song because again, I think it's joyful. I think it's optimistic, but sometimes it says, sometimes you just, you can't help yourself, but look around and, and find some despair there and you just have to cry. Well, I, I I love that you you keyed into that because a lot of times there's a, a a mistake of perceiving joy as optimism or even naivete instead of seeing it as realism because mm -hmm. realism is to stare truth in the face and to know what is going on and to still smile. And sometimes you can't smile and that's okay as well. I find myself to be a realist who, who airs towards optimism, even though there's so much joy, I also feel the need to balance the, the joy and temper it with the truth telling. And when you have that both joy bringing and truth telling together, the album is born. You can't have one without the other. That was Oscar winner John Batiste. His new album is called We Are, and it's available now wherever you buy fine music. Everyone remembers Audrey Hepburn, if only for Breakfast at Tiffany's, but there's so many other movies. She was a huge movie star. And then in her 50s, she kind of stepped out of the spotlight, at least out from in front of a camera, and started doing some good work, working with UNICEF uh, and really being philanthropic. A new book called Warrior, Audrey Hepburn by Robert Matson details those years, which weren't really widely covered in the press. It's a fascinating story. And Robert Matson joins me via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles to tell us all about it. This is your second book about Audrey Hepburn. What is it about her as a subject, as a biographer that draws you in? I didn't intend to write a second book about Audrey, but her son Luca and I had become friends and he told me there was yet another part of her life story that I had not covered that that people didn't know about that he thought was important to tell them about and that's how I got started you know on on a second adventure with Audrey because I I I had no idea that as little known as her war years were um that's how little known really her true UNICEF story was and and so the answer to your question is she was a multifaceted person with lots of things about her that are interesting and and really crazy cool. Why do you think it is that her years working with UNICEF, where she did so much good, have been almost lost to time? I'll tell you my own experience with Audrey in the 1980s and early 1990s was that she was background noise to me. And I, I think that might have been the case to a lot of people because what I thought from the outside back then was, you know, she's just another celebrity that needs attention. And that's, that's what she was doing. And so I didn't pay her much attention. And I think the media initially thought, what a great story. Audrey's going to these countries. And so they covered the first mission, which was Ethiopia. They covered it extensively. And then as each mission went along, she got less and less coverage because 
reporters thought, ah, we did that already. We did, you know, we've been there. And so I think that partially explains why there isn't a lot of documentation. Plus, UNICEF by its nature is not a uh, an organization that's going to spend a lot of time documenting what's already happened. You know, their mission is to help and and keep helping around the world where they're needed. So that's another reason why there just wasn't a lot. Audrey's very nature as a private person meant she didn't document or seek documentation of what had happened. So all those things add up. The book is called Warrior Audrey Hepburn. Uh, it, it seems a little bit at odds with her often kind of demure screen presence. Explain uh, the, the difference, I guess, between the roles that she took on screen versus what happened in real life and the way she lived her life. So Audrey Hepburn was the accidental movie star who never wanted to be a movie star. She was at heart a dancer. That's all she ever wanted to be was a dancer. She wanted to be a classical ballerina. And that didn't happen for her, but she had this unique face and this unique personality that was well suited to the screen. So she became a movie star, um, but always a private person. And as I documented in my first book about Audrey, Dutch Girl, she had secrets that came out of World War II that had to do with her parents. She was deeply ashamed that both of her parents had been pro-German, pro-Nazi uh, at, at the outbreak of World War II. And so she did not want to talk about that or deal with that, which drove her deeper into this introversion that was lifelong. And so when UNICEF came along, she was retired. She had been retired to the, from the screen to raise her two sons. Um, and when they were grown, she felt young, mid-50s. She felt like she was still young and had vitality and a lot to offer the world. But what was she going to do? And UNICEF came calling. It brought her back to all the experiences in the war. And so she went off to do this thing, gave it her total commitment, while still being this shy, introverted person who allowed herself to be thrust onto the world stage and in very difficult areas, uh, doing something that wasn't in her nature, which was getting attention. But she, she allowed it because it was getting attention for UNICEF, mm -hmm. not for Audrey Hepburn. And she used her face and her name to be used for a cause when she never would have done it for herself. You're listening to my interview with Robert Matson, author of Warrior, Audrey Hepburn, available now wherever you buy fine books. You had the cooperation uh, of her son, but what was it like doing the rest of the research? It's a great question. And it's always the challenge of, of any biographer, any historian is to tell the story accurately. And so I go back to primary sources. Uh, I rely on primary sources that then you have to verify. And so what you end up with is sort of a mosaic of pieces that all come together. And in this case, yeah, Luca Dotti, Audrey's younger son, wanted this story to be told very much because he's so proud of his mother and what she did. And when he was young, you know, she died when he was 21, 22, 22 years old and, and a young 22. And so you know, he's sort of on a mission along with me to tell this story. And he put me in touch with uh, her best 
friend, Audrey's best friend, was Yul Brynner's ex-wife, Doris, Doris Brynner. And she's, she just turned 90. She's living in Switzerland. Doris was a great help. Krista Roth was Audrey's PR person for UNICEF based in Geneva. Uh, I spent hours with Krista talking about, you know, what it was like to work with Audrey and the evolution of that relationship. I talked with a lot of people that worked with Audrey in the field, and they were able to add the missing pieces from the available documentation. So, you know, they, they filled in gaps and, and helped this story to emerge. So uh, I talked to John Isaac, who was Audrey's photographer on two of the missions, and really was the one who showed her the ropes, uh, what UNICEF was like, what to expect in the field, how to conduct herself. Um, and, and these people are still in love with Audrey Hepburn, you know, all you have to do is say to them, um, do you mind talking about Audrey with me for a little bit? And they're like, you know, they're off, they're off with you, um, reliving great memories. Well, it is interesting to think of Audrey Hepburn, who hasn't made a movie for 40 years, uh, who is long since passed, uh, and is still such an interesting uh, iconic image in popular culture. Uh, there are, uh, if you go online, if you see uh, displays in high-end fashion stores. Uh, so clearly, you know, she was uh, someone who has left a very long-lasting impression. Perhaps even if people don't know all the movies. Yeah, and um, I often wondered, even when I wrote Dutch Girl and after Dutch Girl came out and there was this, you know, international acclaim and buzz about this story of Audrey versus the Nazis. I didn't quite get why, why is she still so popular? Mm -hmm. But the UNICEF piece sort of rounded it all out for me and, and gave me the third dimension in this 3D look at Audrey Hepburn and why she is still revered. You know, some people say Saint Audrey because mm -hmm. She did so much, no black marks, you know, no, she never fell down and, and, um, and displayed this sort of, you know, um, bad behavior that, that many celebrities do. You know, she, she, she stayed true to herself and true to her message. She came from Dutch nobility. And so she always felt an, a sense of noblesse oblige, um, to help those less fortunate. And, and all of that adds up, you know, the face, the voice, that international voice she had, um, the glamorous clothes she wore on that, you know, perfect, I guess, models frame. All of it just adds up into this timeless, truly timeless personality. That was Robert Matson, author of the book, Warrior, Audrey Hepburn, which is available now wherever you buy fine books. Let's meet author Jamie Weinman. His new book is Anvils, Mallets, and Dynamite, the unauthorized biography of Looney Tunes. In this conversation, he'll try to explain why the Looney Tunes cartoons have held up so well over the years, why they're still popular, but really get down to the basic meaning of why they're still funny decades after they were first made. Here's Jamie Weinman. Tell me a little bit about when you first became interested in Looney Tunes. Was it like me? After school, you'd come home and they just seemed to be on all the time from about three to five o'clock. 
Yes, I, I like many people, I first encountered the uh, Looney Tunes cartoons on television, both on the Saturday morning packages that were on networks like ABC and the syndicated packages that were on other local channels. As to when I really became interested in Looney Tunes, I think uh, it, it traces back to when I was on, in high school and I went to uh, a video store and rented some videotapes of uh, Looney Tunes cartoons, which I had not seen in a long time. And I discovered that they were actually much funnier than I remembered as a kid. And I loved them as a kid, but they were actually, uh, actually terrific. And it's a very unusual experience uh, watching stuff on television as a child and then growing up and realizing that you can like it just as much without any lowering of standards, let's say. A lot of the stuff we, we love as a kid on television is not very good. And, um, and when you grow up and find that something really is good, it's very intriguing. And it's uh, so uh, it, it sent me down, um, no pun intended, a rabbit hole <laughs> looking for uh, the uh, to find out more about the people who made uh, the cartoons and uh, and sort of understand the different styles that were um, that, that I, I could sense but couldn't put a name to. As a viewer, I knew the difference between different Looney Tunes directors or different Looney Tunes eras, and I became interested in trying to figure out, uh, you know, a, who are the people behind this? Why is one style different from another? And uh, and and that led to my learning more about the history of the cartoons, and then eventually to this book. And for me, when I look at them today, I've watched them probably for I don't know fifty years, maybe, and between television, and I revisit them every now and again, and I think they date really well. They 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 hold up. They're still funny. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? Uh, the things that date in comedy are often th uh, verbal jokes or, uh, or or uh, or or the idea of a particular gag being funny. Uh, the things that hold up the most, I, I think, are are things that are a little more abstract, like. Um, uh, like timing, which uh, which is why I place so much of an emphasis on timing. A gag may not hold up, or maybe the same as um, every uh, as as other people who've done the same gag. But the combination of a gag with music and uh, sound effects and uh, and very split second timing uh, creates a laugh that uh, uh, you pretty much any time you see it because it's not tied to our knowledge of um, uh, or of, of a particular thing or to a particular um, cultural idea of what is funny. It's just the, the most basic visceral thing that it's, it's funny to see an anvil land on someone's head at just the precise right time with the precise right sound. That combination of, um, of, of visual visually oriented humor with more more precise timing than say a silent movie was able to have um i think is one thing that keeps them going and another thing that keeps them going is just that um they're sort of the right mix of character comedy and gag comedy you're listening to my interview with jamie weinman author of anvils mallets and dynamite the unauthorized biography of looney tunes available now wherever you buy fine books sometimes something that's funny won't hold up because we don't really know anything about the person who's it's happening to or it's just a gag for its own sake mm -hmm. often doesn't hold up but 
what the uh, creators of uh, Looney Tunes were able to do was to create a sort of a stable of characters who, while they don't have any continuity and they don't have any um, any real histories uh, the way we think of characters today, they have defined enough personalities that once we know um, what uh, what the basic personalities are, it sort of makes the uh, every gag funnier. We know what's going to happen in a typical Bugs Bunny cartoon, but it is funnier because we know the personalities of Bugs and Elmer and some mm-hmm. of the other characters. And uh, I yeah, so that's it's it's sort of the perfect balance between characterization and gags for its own sake. Uh, they'll never uh, they'll never let characterization get in the way of a gag, but they'll also um, never I never completely sell out characterization for the sake of a gag. And you can't take Mel Blanc out of the equation. I no. mean, I think if you did, you wouldn't have Looney Tunes still being talked about uh, decades after their uh, first release. Um, just how important was he to it? And it's interesting to me that he did so many of the voices. Uh, yeah. he, and there are cartoons that he did all the voices in, I think. So talk yeah. a little bit about Mel Blanc. Well, um, in the originally in um, in car, sound cartoons, voice acting was not really that much of a it wasn't really a professional thing, uh, and uh, it, uh, often the creators would do it, which still happens today, or they would just get people from around the studio, which is how um, Walt Disney ended up voicing Mickey Mouse. It's not they do a search to find someone to do the voice. It was just he was there, he'll do the voice, right. um, and. Um, and what happened? Uh, what they Warner Brothers originally, you know, didn't have a, a much of a its own stable of voice actors, but uh, they got Mel Blanc in, who's a radio actor, t- uh, to do some voices, and they liked his, him so much that they just started having him do more voices. So they get a, they needed a new actor for Porky Pig, so they gave it to Blank. Um, Daffy Duck made his appear- first appearance in that same cartoon, and uh, and so Mel Blanc became the voice of Daffy. And just as time went on, they just kept inviting him in to do more voices. And I don't think they ever intended to become completely dependent on him. And what's up, Doc? But they, uh, by the uh, you know, by a certain point, they had realized that he was doing basically every character because they just. They, they, they just showed him an idea for a new character and asked him to come up with a voice that would be appropriate. The advantage of having him on hand for almost all the cartoons was that um, it, it gave them, it, it, it certainly influenced the way they thought about characters because they could um, uh, they, they could uh, they, they could figure out who a new character was by asking Blank to come up with a voice that would suit it, uh, suit it, and. And blank, of course, the the in animation, the the voices have to be recorded first, so the animators can work to it. I think that blanks um, was essential to the cartoons in almost every way, and uh, he didn't he didn't write them, but he certainly influenced what what, what was written for him. That's all, folks. Now, hang on a sec. That's not quite all. I've got some people to thank. That was Jamie Wyman. His new book, Anvils, Mallets, and Dynamite, the unauthorized biography of Looney Tunes, is available wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to Jamie for coming by. Also, a big thanks to musician John Batiste for being here. His new album, We Are, is available right now. 
I also want to thank Hollywood biographer Robert Matson for stopping by to tell us all about a fascinating and largely unknown part of Audrey Hepburn's life. His book is called Warrior. Audrey Hepburn. Find it now wherever you buy fine books. And also a big thanks to Christina Cook. Her new book, Good Burdens, How to Live Joyfully in the Digital Age, is on bookshelves right now. Check it out. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. We'll talk again soon. Mm-hmm.